Let's uh, launch this new series tonight, mini-series. We're just going to be talking over these next three weeks on worship. And we're going to be in Psalm 95 in a moment. And the reason we're talking about worship is because, well, actually, to be totally honest with you, worship is the reason why we do all of this. The reason why we exist, the reason why we as a church have made decisions to plant more venues and play our part in church planting and and, want to equip each of you to make a difference where you spend the majority of your time all comes back to this idea that God is not only real, but he's good. And he's not only good, but he is eternally worthy of our worship. It's all based on this idea that worship is what you and I were created for. It's the reason we're serious about launching more venues. It's the reason we're serious about mission, because there are not yet enough worshipers. We look around us and we go, yeah, it's great. We've got a church of hundreds and hundreds of people, but there are tens and tens of thousands of people who do not yet worship. That's why we're really serious about mission, because at the end of the day, we're really serious about worship. And we recognize and we understand that this big story that we're part of, where it's all heading is that moment, that picture we see in the book of Revelation, where one day a great multitude that no one can number from every tribe and every tongue, every race, every creed, every people group, every nation will gather around the throne and worship this glorious King of kings and Lord of lords. This is why we exist. This is why we do what we do. And a few years ago, we really felt God speak to us about raising the level of expectation of what he would do here in us and through us. And we talked about reaching the nations by advancing through prayer fueled by worship. And so worship undergirds everything that we do. And tonight, we're going to be looking at uh, Psalm 95, which gives us a glimpse of what real worship is. Because there's a real danger when it comes to talking about and thinking about worship, to think that worship is just that, like kind of depending who's hosting, certain few minutes, sometimes longer than others, depending who it is and depending who's leading worship and depending how many contributions they are, worship is that bit at the beginning of a meeting. Or worse still, worship's the, not the praisey stuff, worship's when it slows down a bit and we come Holy Spirit, that's worship. It's part of it, but that's not what the fullness of worship really is. And sometimes we also run the danger of thinking, well, worship is, is what I do. Well, yes, it is. But actually, worship is, is much bigger than that. There's something deeper, something that worship is something bigger and deeper that actually shapes our whole lives. Let's look at Psalm 95 together. Oh, come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come into his presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise to him with songs of praise. For the Lord is a great God and a great king above all gods. In his hand are the depths of the earth. The heights of the mountains are his also. The sea is his, for he made it, and his hands formed the dry land. Oh, come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker, for he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts, as at Meribah, as on the day at Massa in the wilderness, when your fathers put me to the test and put me to the proof, though they had seen my work. For 40 years, I loathed that generation and said, there are people who, are, who, are, who go astray in their heart and they have not known my ways. Therefore, I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. That's a picture of worship. 
Now, you might be sitting here tonight and thinking, well, not really, mate. <laughs> that might apply to you, but that, that don't apply to me. I, I mean, you, you believe this stuff and you can sing this stuff about Jesus. And that, that doesn't, that's not really me. I mean, it's, it's okay if you want to do it, but this doesn't apply to me. Or you might be sitting here slowly zoning out because having a time of worship and singing is bad enough. Now you've got to listen to someone talk about it for another few minutes. And you're thinking, oh, this is just like my worst possible nightmare. They sing and then they talk about singing. This is horrendous. <laughs> This isn't really me. Listen, if you're in either of those camps, or even if you're not, I just want to say, listen, this is, this here is for everybody. This applies to all of us. And the reason it applies to all of us is this is the first thing to say. Everybody worships. It's really crucial and really critical to understand this. Everybody worships. Worship is, is more than singing songs. We'll unpick that in a moment. But worship in its truest sense is that which you give your whole being to. Worship is that which you live for. Worship is that which you desire. You worship the desires of your heart. Everybody worships. I'm not a Harry Potter fan, all right? I was forced to watch the film, the first one, many, many years ago. Uh, I never read any of the books. But there's this uh, moment in uh, the first Harry Potter film, and therefore I assume in the book, where J.K. Rowling taps into this, this idea of desire. And there's this thing in Harry Potter in the first one called The Mirror of Erised. Now, Harry Potter is not a particularly like literary classic. It's not particularly clever. It's like, how did you have these amazing ideas? The Mirror of Erised. It's basically just desire spelt backwards, all right? It's not, a, it's, it's not like some big genius thing. Whoa! It's like, here's a word, turn it the other way around and pretend there's a new one. That's kind of, I mean, there's more to J.K. Rowling's writing than that, I'm sure. But this particular bit, the mirror of Erisad. And in this particular scene, Harry Potter rocks up, looks in this mirror, and he's very surprised to see his parents. Now, he's surprised, I mean... I'm assuming I'm not ruining anybody's enjoyment of Harry Potter here. His parents are dead, right? He's never, he's never seen them. <laughs> what? Don't worry, it gets better, I think. He's looking in this mirror, and he not only sees his parents, but he sees them with their standing there with their hand on his shoulder, loving him. And he's so excited. And he goes and runs, and he finds his little friend Ron, who's kind of like, I mean, every sort of hero has to have a kind of Ron kind of sidekick, doesn't it? He's like, Ron, Ron, Ron! Actually, I, th I think in the first film it was more like, Ron, Ron, Ron! <laughs> Come this way! Look! <laughs> My parents are not in it. And, and he's fully expecting Ron to look in this mirror and see his parents too. Ron looks in the mirror. And Ron doesn't see his parents at all. What does Ron see? Ron sees himself as a school sports champion. He sees himself as a head prefect. He sees himself properly loved and amazed. And Harry looks at him and says, mm, sorry, mate, that's not going to happen for you. But never mind. That's, that's not strictly true. They're confused. Why do I see my parents and you don't? You see yourself as this big hero in school. What is going on here? What is this mirror all about? And then Harry Potter's mentor comes along and says, and explains, says, Listen, this mirror isn't what you think it is. This mirror shows you the deepest and most desperate desires of your heart. The things that are in your heart, the desperate desire, the thing that you want the most, this mirror will show you. Here's the thing. Every single one of us has our hope in something. Every single one of us looks into the equivalent of that mirror 
We're all living for something. Every single one of us has something deep, the desperate desires of our heart that if I get that or when I get that, when this works out for me, if I can just get hold of this thing, then everything will be okay. Then I'll be content. Then I'll be happy. Then my life will be worth living or then it will be complete or then I will know joy and satisfaction. Every single one of us has those desires of our heart. And here's the thing, whatever that thing is, That's what we center our whole lives on. That's what we give our whole lives to. That's what we worship. That's what we worship. Now, it's not like we stand and and, and whatever that thing is and we sing at it. I mean, that would be a little bit odd. Like if you, I don't know, you get to a stage, you're like, I want the house. It's not like you stand and go, hey, everybody, gather around. We're gonna come and we're gonna worship this house and we're gonna sing this cornerstone, these solid walls. These are the strongest foundations I've seen. It's got three floors and beautiful wooden doors and an ensuite to my bedroom. What a great, great house in an amazing street. My life will surely be complete when I have this house, for I want it now. And the Lord must say, this is mine, or whatever, right? That would be with, yeah, well. I've got more later, we save the applause for later. Like we don't do that, do we? We don't go and like, Oh, beautiful money, I love you. Beautiful money, I adore. Beautiful money, my soul, it wants more. I mean, I can keep going. How many other worship songs do you want me to ruin? Anybody not want us to sing one again? I will change the words for you tonight so we never have, no. We don't do that, do we? We don't sing of those things with our lips, but our heart craves them. Our heart desires them. I might never sing beautiful money, I adore you. But if I just had this much, everything would be all right. See, worship is not just about what comes out of our mouth with the songs that we sing. Worship in its fullest, truest, biggest sense of the word is the act of giving ultimate value to something or someone in such a way that it involves, it energizes, it engages our whole beings. We see that here in this, in this psalm, right here in Psalm 95. Worship, in true, in its proper sense, engages all of you, from your emotion to your will, every part of you. Verse one here, it says, sing, make a joyful noise, shout, give thanksgiving, use music, extol, be enthusiastic. What's that the language of? It's the language of emotion. Worship stirs our emotion. Worship stirs our affection. We give ourselves to it, but worship isn't just some emotional response that we give. We see here worship also involves our will. Verse six, let us bow down. Let us kneel before. What's this the language of? It's the language of surrender and submission. Worship engages not just our emotions, but also our wills. We will give stuff for it, for that which we desire. But it goes further. Worship's not irrational, it's furiously rational, it engages our minds. Verse seven here, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. What's going on here? This is the language of thinking of your mind. Hear his voice, listen to his voice, work out what he's saying, process what is being said. Do I accept, do I reject? It's furiously rational, I'm thinking about it, I'm engaging my mind. See, worship, that which we, the desire of our heart, that which we give ourselves to, involves our mind, we think thinking about it all the time. 
involves our will. We'll give anything for it. It involves our emotions. We're stirred by it. So worship isn't just singing songs or words. It's something that engages our whole beings and it causes us to live accordingly. This is the thing that is worthy of my worship, so that's how I'm going to live. And that shouldn't really surprise us because the word worship comes from an old English word, worth-ship. That which we give worth to and then how we live accordingly. Now, you might be sitting and go, okay, mate, that's okay for you, but I still don't really see, I, mean, I, don't, think it's that. I don't think that's me. I mean, I'm not really sure that's relevant. Why, why is this important? I mean, well, the answer is in verse three here. I mean, you might have missed it. But the answer here in verse three is that you're already worshiping something. See, verse three says, for the Lord is a great God and a great king. Worshiping him above all gods. Or you're worshiping one of those. Whatever it is that you worship, and if, if, you're, if you're struggling with worship and you still can't get past its singing songs, just substitute the word desire right there. Whatever it is you desire, it engages your mind. You think about it all the time. What's the thing you daydream about? That's what you worship. What's the thing that consumes your thought when you just, just think, that's what you worship? Or it's a good indicator of it. You think about it, it engages your mind, but it also engages your emotions. You get excited about the prospect of getting it and then get upset, devastated if it feels like it's been taken away from you or that has gone. And you submit your will to it as well. You will do anything it takes to get that thing. Here's the thing. The world is not simply divided between those who worship and those who don't. The world is divided into people who worship things that will distort your life and people who worship the only proper object worthy of the worship of your soul. They're the only two things. One brings life, the other destroys it. One brings life, the other takes it away. Now, J.K. Rowling, I don't, I don't think she's a believer, but she, she's a smart woman. She understands the power of desire. Because in that scene of, in Harry Potter with the mirror, Harry said, the mentor comes to Harry Potter and says, we're going to hide this mirror now. We're going to take this mirror away. Because the trouble is people waste away before it. They waste away just looking at it. She knew. Not even a believer. She knew. People just inv invest hours, tons of energy, tons of emotion, tons of finance even into chasing this thing and it all just ends up wasting away. Whoever you are tonight, however you walked in here, there is nothing more important than what you worship. We worship what we desire. And since worship engages our whole being, and since when your heart is captivated by something, it changes you, and since you become what you worship, it's so important to make sure we're worshiping the right things. There's a guy called David Foster Wallace, who is an American novelist, author, University professor, professor of language and literature, very, very smart guy, wrote essays and all sorts of things. And in a, very sadly, he, he committed suicide about 10 years ago. But before he did that, he was speaking to a bunch of students. You know, like a, and you have your graduation and someone comes along and basically says, well done on spending all this money getting this piece of paper. Now go and make something of your life and change the world. And they basically say something nice and you don't really listen because you just want to go and have your picture taken, throwing your cat in the air and all that kind of stuff. But anyway, he's doing this, and instead of sticking to the script of, go change the world, people, 
He just said, can I just be honest with you? I just want to tell you a few things. And he said this. In the day-to-day trenches of adult life, there is actually no such thing as atheism. There is no such thing as not worshipping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And an outstanding reason for choosing some sort of God or spiritual type thing to worship is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, if they're where you tap real meaning in life, then you'll never have enough. Never feel you have enough. It's the truth. Worship your own body and beauty and sexual allure and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally plant you. On one level, we know all this stuff already. It's been codified as myths and proverbs, cliches, bromides, epigrams, parables, the skeleton of every great story. The trick is keeping the truth up front in daily consciousness. Worship power and you will feel weak and afraid. And you'll need ever more power over others to keep the fear at bay. Worship your intellect being seen as smart and you'll end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out and so on. Look, the insidious thing about these forms of worship is that they're unconscious. They are default settings. They're the kind of worship you just gradually slip into day after day, getting more and more selective about what you see and how you measure value without ever being fully aware that that's what you're doing. And the world will not discourage you from operating on your default settings because the world of men and money and power hums along quite nicely on the fuel of fear and contempt and frustration and craving and the worship of self. Boom! Like straight up. Like if, that's the kind of thing you expect like Christian pastors and speakers who are like infinitely smarter than me to come out with and say, no, listen, don't worship those things because they will kill you. They'll eat you alive. This is a guy who's not a believer. He just says it like it is. Nail on the head. Worship any of those things and they'll eat your life. And this psalmist is shouting exactly the same thing. We all worship. Make sure that what you worship is worthy of it and will not eat you alive but bring you life. And what's more, just as David Foster Wallace understood, if you're not intentionally worshiping God, you will unconsciously worship the gods of this age whether that's money, power, sex, whatever it might be. And here's the thing. This is where it affects everybody. This is not just about believing in God versus not believing in God. Oh, the people who believe in God, they worship the one true God. That's fine. The Everyone else, they don't. They're, they're the ones in issue. No, no, no. Listen, so many people believe in God. Even demons believe in God. They're not stupid. So many Christians, I mean, hopefully all Christians, but so many Christians just, I believe in God. I'm okay. There's a difference between believing in God and worshiping God. There's a difference between singing worship songs on a Sunday and being a worshiper of God. Before the summer, I, uh, I watched a TV show that I've never watched be- before and I'll never watch again. It's called The Antiques Roadshow. <laughs> it's a real hoot. <laughs> and I'm watching the show. If, you, if you've... If you've never seen it, because you, it's like a, a kind of BBC One version of Cash in the Attic, all right, with everything a bit better than the tat. 
And basically, they have these expert valuers who come, and you bring your stuff, and you're, you're kind of in your hope that this will be something amazing. This is the long, long Byzantine pottery something. I don't even know if it was invented in those days. Something amazing. That's what you hope. Anyway, the episode I'm watching is this lady, somewhere in the black country, and this, this lady, she uh, had a bracelet that her mother-in-law had given her. Now, because it was from her mother-in-law, she did what you're supposed to do and put it in the loft, all right? And she wasn't overly, overly worried about it, didn't think it was, had much value, didn't think much of it, it was just, but Antique Roadshow are coming, let's go and have a look. So she brings out this bracelet, and uh, the valuer guy, they all look the same, like with his monocle, and hello, tell me the story of this. And it's not particularly dramatic, Antiques Roadshow, so that's about as exciting as it gets. Tell me what happened today, have you come far? And that's kind of what, in looking at this thing, and, and there's no real tension, she's like, well, my mother-in-law gave it me, and it's just been in the loft, and I just thought, well, I'll just bring it along. And, he, and he's, he's just something where he ain't listening to her anymore. And he gets out his, I don't know, magnifying glass, I guess, and he's looking at this thing and he turns it over. He turns it back again and he holds it up and he's looking and he's... And he looks at her and says, this thing is worth hundreds of thousands of pounds. And the look on her face, she's like, if my mother-in-law was still alive, I wouldn't tell her. <laughs> this is a life-changing amount for this owner. I mean, this thing is worth hundreds of thousands of pounds. She is thunderstruck, she's, and she suddenly realizes that up until this point, up until two minutes before, she had not been living in accordance with the value of the thing that she had. I mean, she knew it existed, she had it, she knew about it, she knew exactly where it was, she had occasionally gone look at it when she was tidying something up, but she had no idea about the value of it. And as soon as she realized the value of it, her whole life changed. Her whole attitude to everything changed. Her whole, wow, I've suddenly got something which changes the whole trajectory of my life that suddenly changes what I'm able to do. I used to, I knew I had it, but I didn't understand and appreciate the value of it. It didn't really affect my life, but now I know the value of it, everything's changed. There's believing in God, knowing about him, Knowing a bit of stuff, knowing well, he's there and kind of, but you can believe in God and live in such a way without knowing the true value, without knowing the true worth, the true magnificence, the life altering difference of it. And you can live with that knowledge and it not really affect your life in any way, shape or form. And then there's being a worshiper of God, someone who understands the full worth of the one we come to worship and the impact that makes. Not in the sense of using worship as a little pick-me-up. Come on Sunday, sing a few songs, get to Wednesday. Oh, okay, I'm in community. Let's hopefully we'll sing. If not, I'll listen to a song on the way home. That'll get me through to Friday. And then Friday comes and, well, it's only two days. I'll be okay till Sunday. And then we'll do the whole routine again, a little pick. No, 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 no. Being a worshiper in the sense that it electrifies your life and changes your life. And completely changes your perception on everything. Just like the valuer at the Antiques Roadshow, you begin to look at God, at who he is and what he has done. And it dawns on you the value and the beauty of who God is. And then suddenly, like the owner of this bracelet, your entire life is changed. And this needs to not just be a one-time thing. Obviously, there's the first moment you become a Christian. It's like this revelation of who God is. You go, wow, I did not know. But this needs to be a continual thing. 
You see, over the process of time, just life itself, the pressure of life and, and everything going on and just everything when you first become a Christian is pretty exciting for the first year. Everything's brand new. And then you roll around the second year and you think, hang on a minute, I'm pretty sure that sermon I've already heard, it's just got a different intro and a different ending and a few different Bible verses. Has this guy only got three sermons? And if you're lucky, you've got five. I've got five, all right? So different sermons. And they basically just swapped around. And everything, well, I've heard this before. And you sing the songs and... What was, Lord of all the earth, we shout your name, we shout, wow, was, oh, he's not using the loops this week. I'll fill it in in my head. Some of you who don't get that, like, I'm still in the excited phase. What is this? Give it three years, it won't be, it'll be, that's what happens. What was exciting becomes routine what was wow becomes eh, yeah and if we're not careful what happens is the sameness of life means something deep and dark begins to enter our soul and it breeds cynicism and it breeds skepticism and it breeds boredom and it breeds over familiarity and we go stale and we lose our freshness you do it with God. Oh, yeah, he's great. He's good, yeah. He saved me, yeah. Yeah, yeah, thanks. He saved me. Oh, yeah, well, of course he would. I'd save me. I'm all right. We sang this last week. Definitely sang this one last week. Even now, mate, hurry up. You've made your point. What we need, because we do it with God, is to continually remind ourselves. Continually remind our hearts and our wills and our emotions of God because we so often forget or we get distracted. I do it all the time. I'm not a particularly forgetful person, right? But I get distracted all the time. Yesterday, my wife, our three little kids, my wife was out doing something fun and I had the kids, which was kind of fun. And uh, we were, had several hours, and in the afternoon, I had several hours with him. And in the afternoon, we were going to a barbecue, right? And we picked Han up, and we were driving to this barbecue, and she just makes some kind of comment. I bear in mind, I'd, I'd had him for most of the day. She made some kind of comment about lunchtime. And from the back of the car, my eldest pipes up and goes, We didn't have lunch. <laughs> and Han suddenly shoots a look at me and goes, What? And I went, I forgot to feed them. <laughs> <laughs> I just totally forgot. I mean, I didn't forget. I did, it wasn't like I forgot that you need food. I just was distracted doing other things. And oh, well, they didn't eat that day. I mean, we went to a barbecue. It was fine. It was not a, I probably shouldn't be admitting this with Nick Stein, a career in social work in this borough. <laughs> I won't mention that the reason they were distracted is because they were watching TV for four hours straight and they weren't going to complain about that. <laughs> that's, that's not true. <laughs> I do it all the time. I get distracted by stuff. How much more so do we do it in God? School, uni, work, parents, children, relationships, work, this issue, that issue, the pressures of life. And that's just the difficult stuff. And throwing the good stuff and the things that you think, oh, that's it quite exciting. And before we know it, our lives are so filled with other stuff. It's not that we've forgotten about God, we've just been distracted by other things. 
we need to regularly remind ourselves of who he is and just how big he is and just how glorious he is. We're starting a new academic year. It all kicks in term this week. It's a new term. And so it's a new opportunity for us to align our priorities and our desires. Not just to be believers, but to be worshippers. Those who the Bible says worship in spirit and truth. Worshippers who, Romans 12, uh, 1 and 2 says, offer our whole lives as living sacrifices. Worshippers who, 1 Corinthians 10, 31 says, whatever we do, whether we eat, drink, whatever it is, we do it all to the glory of God. See, God's looking for devoted worshippers. And I just have a sense, I share this in all the other meetings, this is to be a year for us as a church to be marked by devotion. See, a mark of the the first church, the church that changed the world, you can read about them in the book of Acts, in Acts chapter two, a mark of them, verse 42, they were devoted to God and to one another. In fact, the only time, the only time in the entire Bible where Jesus declares that a human action would be proclaimed in the whole world, would be remembered in the whole world, was in the response to an act of devotion. In Matthew 26, this woman breaks a jar of expensive perfume over Jesus and it was such an act of devoted intimacy and it outraged all the people there. What are you doing? How stupid can you be? How were you pouring all your life into this? And Jesus praises her for her devotion for her worship. You see, real worship displays something of this kind of devotion. Jonathan Edwards, the the great preacher, he said, resolution number one, I will live for God. Resolution number two, if no one else does, I still will. Devotion is I don't care what they're doing or what he's doing or what she's doing or what they're doing. As for me, I'm going to fix my eyes on Jesus and be devoted. Not just a believer, but a worshiper. And real worship begins by looking at who God is, just like the psalmist engaging our mind and going, this is who he is, and then bending our wills and then affecting our emotions as we look at who God is. Not God in our own image. Not God who is what we want God to be. Not God who is kind of the God of our preference or the God of our pleasing, but the God of who he really is. And Psalm 95 and the rest of the Psalms and the rest of the scriptures give us this incredible picture that, of who God is. All the gods of this age are worthless, but he is not. You see, my God is immensely, is immense beyond imagination. He measured the entire universe with merely the span of his hands. My God is unimaginably awesome in all of his perfections, absolutely righteous, absolutely holy, absolutely just in all of his ways. He has also been so unbelievably good and merciful to me as the creator and the sustainer of my life. Every breath, every heartbeat, every function of every organ in my body is a gift from him. Every legitimate pleasure that I have experienced is a gift from him, from his loving hand to me. All that I am and all that I have, I owe to him and to his goodness. My life in every way is and will continue to be utterly dependent upon him in whom I live and move and have my being. This wonderful God is the most supremely worthy object of admiration and honor and delight in all of the universe. And he has created me with the intention that I might glorify him by finding my soul's delight in him and by living in joyful obedience to him in all his ways. And yet I could not have failed this great God 
more miserably than I have. Not giving him thanks, but giving him my rebellion. Thinking myself to be wise, I've shown myself to be a fool. And because of my arrogance, God has every right to damn me. I can't save myself. I can't make myself right. I can't sort out my mess. However, what I could not do, God did. And in doing it, he did it all, sending his own son into the world to die on the cross for my sins, therefore showing me an unfathomable love. God loved me so much that he was willing to suffer the loss of his son. And even more amazingly, even more incredibly, he was willing to allow his son to suffer the loss of him at the cross. Jesus loved me so much that he was willing to lay down his life for me. No one could ever love me more or better than Jesus. And he's made a way. And now all who confess in their, with their mouths and believe in their heart that Jesus the Lord can be saved. And he's made a way to deal with all of my junk and all of my mess and all of my sin, all my past, all of my present, and he's got all the future junk covered too. He's made me his child. He's adopted me into his family. He's given me the gift of the Holy Spirit, which means ridiculously the same power that conquered the grave now lives in me. And in saving me, God freed me from slavery to any and all sins. I no longer have to sin again because sin's mastery over me has been broken me. And he's justified me. And he's sanctifying me. He's changing me. He's making me into his image. And now because when he looks at me, he does not see the mess that is me. He sees the righteousness of Christ and the beauty that has been credited to me for all time, not because of anything I've done, but everything that he's done. And so now every time he looks upon me, he treats me with gracious favor and loving kindness, working all things together for my eternal and ultimate goods. Even trials, even hard moments, even the mess and the mundane and the, all the rest of it, he is forcing it all to do good unto me for his glory and my eternal good. And his heart is filled with nothing but nothing but nothing but loving kindness towards me. And so when I do sin, which I do, he desires my confession because he wants to come and shower me with his love. He is grieved by my sin. He takes it seriously, but his grief is at least in part because I am some way when I'm sinning, cutting myself off from his loving kindness, which he wants to shower me with. I don't deserve any of this, even on my best day, but this is my salvation, and herein I stand. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. You know, knowing all of this, reminding my soul again and again and again of all of this, seeing all of this, hearing all of this, how can I ever be anything but a worshiper? 